Hope Church. Continuing our study uh, through the book of Matthew, we started last week with chapter 1. Um, and last week we saw uh, the genealogy um, of Jesus um, and the birth of Jesus. And this morning we were going to continue uh, the story. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll begin in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have uh, to come to you and to, to worship you. We do pray that you would uh, cleanse our lips, that you would purify our hearts and minds uh, this morning, that we could worship you without hindrance. We thank you for the privilege that we have to do so because you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. Uh, We're thankful that our our debts were fully paid there. Uh, We're thankful that the grave could not hold our Savior and King, but that we have a risen Lord. So Jesus, we come and we ask you to teach us um, by your word and by your power of your spirit. That we would, you would do so ultimately for your own glory and honor. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so let's read Matthew chapter 2. Um, let's just go ahead um, and read the chapter, and then we'll come back um, and work our way through it. Um, and it says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, but out of you shall come... A ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And then when they had opened their gifts, their treasures, they gave to him and presented these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men and was exceedingly angry, he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. 
then was fulfilled that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in the dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So let's go back to verse 1, and we're going to work our way through this. Uh, this morning together. And so um, we see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. It says that in um, chapter 2, verse 1, in the days of King Herod. And it says that wise men or magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, who, you know, who, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So well, let's set the scene. You can imagine King Herod sitting there reigning in Jerusalem, and he's in charge you know, of, of this um, vast area. And uh, he's just you know, content. He's happy being the king. He enjoys exercising great power. And at this point, um, you know, maybe he's had a little bit of a season where he doesn't feel any great threats. And then here come these people from the east, possibly from the land of Persia, um, over to him and saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now for Herod, this is important because he is in charge um, of, you know, the, the nation of Israel that's under his authority, under his command. And if another king arises up, that could undermine his authority. And so that he takes that as a threat to himself, and he doesn't want to have to deal with that. And so now we have him facing this very, you know, serious situation. Um, and it says, I found this interesting, that the wise men came from the east, and they said they've come to worship him. They've come to worship Jesus. Now, that's powerful. They're not just coming um, to see him, to see who he is, but they're coming to bow down their faces before him and to give him worship. And so, now, who are these magi? We think they're people who, um, who studied the stars and tried to learn from them. It's probably a combination of what we would consider astronomy, the study of the stars, and astrology, where you're trying to determine some special meanings um, from the stars. Um, so it's be like a combination of those things. We know um, throughout history, we have been uh, fascinated by what happens above us. Uh, you know, for thousands of years, we've been fascinated by this. And if you look at the ancient writings um, in China, if you look at ancient writings in Babylon, if you look at ancient you know, depictions in uh, you know, among the Mayans, among the Aztecs, you see this fascination with what is happening 
in the stars. We also saw that that was important you know, for the Hebrew people because they've had some events in their history uh, that tell them to look up. For example, when the, when the Hebrews came out of the land of Egypt, it said the Lord God went by a cloud, you know, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they followed that. Uh, you know, they followed that, that sign with them to, to see where Jesus went. Even today, we're still fascinated by these things. We, how many of you saw the eclipse on Monday? Okay. Most of you went and saw it. Now, how many of you went somewhere where you could see it in, in its totality? Uh, some people went to where you could go see all of it. <laughs> so you can see all of it. Uh, so Demir and Ingrid and my family, we went up to um, the south side of Lake Hartwell uh, to where we could be in that total you know, zone. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. You know, you're sitting there and you're like, you got your glasses on. Even the ones from Amazon, they said you might not want to use these because we can't completely verify that they're 100%. But you're like, if I only look at it for just a little bit, it's probably, you know, do this every few seconds. Yeah, sure, we're good, right? Um, So we're looking up, and you can see it moving across. You know, you check every, you know, five or ten minutes, and it's a little more, you know, the sun's a little more covered, a little more covered, and you're like, this is all right. And then it happens where it's, you know, 100%, and you just have the ring of the sun on the outside. You know, it goes dark, the temperature, you feel the temperature drop. The, you know, the animals and insects start acting like it's night. And you're like, now this gets your attention. This is cool. Now, we know exactly why all this is, is happening. You know, at a certain point in history, you know, people are trying to discover why this is happening. But... You know, for 2,000 years now, people have been able to say when this is, eclipse is, is coming. You know, the lunar eclipses for a long time, you know, that was much easier to figure out. More of the Earth is covered um, in those, and the pattern is a little bit easier to decipher. Uh, but even for 2,000 years, you know, been able, people have been able to accurately predict the path of solar eclipses with, without computers, you know, humans have been really intelligent for a really long time because God made us intelligent. You know, he, he made us wise and he made us curious so that we would seek out how God made things and, and what he did. And so it's natural for us to have always been, you know, fascinated by what happens above us. The movement of, of you know, the moon, the movement of planets um, and you know, the, the interesting thing, though, is when people, what so often happened is that instead of worshiping the one who made these things, they would worship the object itself, as if it itself had some um, divine power. And so that's the problem, you know, that can, that can happen uh, when we misunderstand and worship the creation instead of the one who created it, the one who set it all into motion. Um, but these wise men, these magi, have obviously received some sort of a revelation from God because they understand this star to be connected to the birth of the king of the Jews and that they understand that he's not just a person. They understand there's divinity there because he's worthy to be worshipped. 
Um, and so they received a divine revelation. And I think that that's obvious as we go throughout the story. Uh, we'll see that God is communicating uh, with these men. And so Herod is troubled by this. And he brings the chief priests and the scribes of the people to inquire where the Messiah would be born. You know, and while the chief priests and, and the scribes you know, may have argued about different points of theology... They would not have argued about where the king of the Jews would be born. You know, it's a unanimous verdict here that they tell to Herod, Bethlehem. Because it's written, they have it from the prophet Micah, Micah 5.2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This goes back... Um, to the idea of that this king is, as we saw in chapter 1, is Emmanuel, God with us. You know, in chapter 2 here, Matthew is continuing his theme from chapter 1, that Jesus is the king. You know, he's the king of the, of the Jewish people, is going to be established, but he's not just the king of the Jewish people. He's also the king of all the, all the peoples, all the nations, and he's the king of the universe. He's so significant that even something that has never been seen before, you know, in the heavens is going to show up for his birth. And you can imagine that these um, magi from the east have been traveling a long time and following the star for a long time to get to Jerusalem. They're marching, you know, that direction. And if they are managing to cover, you know, 20 miles a day, which would be a pretty good bid, you know, that's um, still going to be a long haul. You know, they had hundreds of miles to go uh, to get there. And they end up at Jerusalem, and it's a little bit of a question mark. Now, do they go to Jerusalem because this is the general area above where, uh, you know, this, this um, thing that they see in the sky is? Um, or is it specifically over Jerusalem? But what's really interesting, this is obviously divine, because when they get to Jerusalem, and then they follow the star, actually, you know, what's called a star here, south. Um, and so it seems like there's like a, a change of direction where, you know, naturally these, you know, heaven, like the planets are moving east to west. And so now, you know, they get to Jerusalem, and then we've got to go south like five miles. And that's an interesting thing. Um, that we see here. So we pick up in verse, um, we're going to pick up in verse 7 in a minute, but before we do that, I want to just talk a little bit more about Bethlehem and why is Bethlehem important? Why was it important for Bethlehem to be the place of the birth of Jesus? Why is that the place? If you remember from last week's message, we listed four women in the genealogy of Jesus. One of those was a Moabite woman named Ruth. She was not a Hebrew. Um, she married a man named Malan who was from Bethlehem. Uh, Malan's family had fled from Bethlehem to Moab during a famine. But he died along with his father and his brother, leaving his mother, Ruth, his mother Naomi along with his wife Ruth and his sister-in-law Orpah. Orpah went back to live with her family. She was a Moabite woman. She went back to live with her family. But Ruth insisted on going to Bethlehem with Naomi. And in Bethlehem, um, God arranges for her to marry Boaz. 
as her redeemer. Now, this is important because her great-grandson was born there, King David. Uh, that's, you see that in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, and we see that King David was anointed to be the king. He's not the king when he's born there. He's not born into you know, a, um, an important family's you know, line uh, to be you know, the king by birth. That was going to be Jonathan's place. Jonathan was, the, was Saul's son that was in line to be the king. Um, but it is Samuel who comes to Bethlehem uh, by divine appointment and anoints David to be the king of Israel. And so this is where the true kingship of Israel lies, is in Bethlehem. And this is why God arranged it for, for the Son of God, Jesus, to be born in Bethlehem. So then we'll pick up back at verse 7. It says, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I may come and worship him. After hearing the king, there went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Okay, so again, we have them following the star over the place uh, where Jesus was. Now, at this point, it says where the child was. In chapter 1, we had Jesus being born. Some time has passed. We, we know from, ultimately from this, from this chapter that Jesus is older than an infant, but he's less than two years old. Um, that's... We can say that without a doubt. We, we can't say with confidence, well, he's three months old, he's six months old, he's nine months old, he's a year, 15 months, whatever. Uh, we can't say that with confidence, but we can say he's not an infant because there's a different word for infant than there is for child, and this is the word for child, and that he's less than two years old. Now, what we see uh, the Magi do when they worship Jesus is that they fall on their faces, they fall before him to the ground and worshiped him. Because he is the true king over everything. Um, And this is the normal response throughout the Gospels when people come to recognize that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is the King, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King, Savior, King. When they, when they come to recognize that, the natural response is to bow oneself down on one's face before him at his feet. And so I think um, we need to understand that this, this physical act represents the humbling of one's heart before God. Of Jesus is so much higher than I am. He's the true king. He's the true savior. I'm not. I am small in comparison to him. I had a debt I couldn't pay. I had, you know, my own, my, my own sin that Jesus died and paid for at the cross. I'm not the king. He is the king. I'm not the savior. 
He is the Savior, and we bow ourselves before Him. So the question then is, what should we expect today when someone comes to know Jesus? What should we expect when those of us who know Jesus come together to worship Jesus? You know, it might not always be a, the physical act of literally getting on one's face or knees, but based on what we see throughout the scriptures, that's certainly not a bad thing to do. Certainly not a bad thing to do. Because sometimes with that physical act, we get our, our hearts and mind in the right place of where they need to be. But hopefully also, because there are times when our minds and our hearts are in the right place, that that's our natural physical response. And I think that can go both ways. But sometimes I think that should be the actual, literal, physical response to what we understand in our minds and hearts about who Jesus is and who we are and how awesome and great he is that we literally would, you know, be on our faces before him. You know, a lot of times I think that's going to happen, you know, when we're on our own, you know, when we're having our own quiet times, you know, with the Lord. Um, but I want it to be clear and to be understood when we come together to worship, it's okay for there to be physical expression to that. We need to make sure a couple of a couple of things. One, that we're not doing anything so that others would see us. That our worship is for Jesus, not for other people. So whether we raise our hands, whether we get on our knees and put our faces on the ground, that is for Jesus. It's not for a show. That needs to be firm in our hearts and minds you know, as we do that. Uh, we also don't want to be a distraction to other people, but I want to be careful as I say that because I think sometimes when we say that, people then take that as, well, then I shouldn't express anything physically. You know, I don't want to be a distraction, so then I'm not going to raise my hand. I don't want to be a distraction, so I'm not going to go in my face, even though that's what I feel in my heart that I should do. The distraction is when the heart's not in the right place. You know, and, and at the same time, I can't be responsible for everybody else's heart in the room. And neither can you. So you can't hinder your worship and say, well, I'm not going to get on my face or... I'm not going to raise my hands because other people may perceive this or that. Well, you can't be responsible for other people's hearts. You know, you need to worship. And the more people we have truly worshiping God in the room, the more that's going to encourage other people in the room to truly worship God. You know, because what I think that we want to avoid is just coming together to sing songs. You know, this isn't a chorus. You know, we're not here because we're like professional singers and we're trying out for a chorus or something like that. It's like, no, we're here to worship God. That's the point. It's not to sing, but to worship. That's the point of it. But it needs to truly be of the Spirit and not something that we just work up emotionally. The mind still has to be involved. Our, our minds still have to be engaged. It's not something where, you know, you turn your mind off and you go into this trance-like, you know, state where then supposedly you're truly worshiping when you're in that. No, that's, that's not right. You know, God made us, you know, intellectual. And, and yes, we want to be led and controlled by and driven by the Spirit of God. But we are still cognitive 
agents in that process. Like we, we're still engaged in our minds and in our hearts in that. There's not a point where you just like, quote unquote, lose control. You know, I don't think that that's like a true worship that we see in the in the scriptures. Okay, but so we balance these things. But if there's no emotion, then I have to question: Do we really get? what Jesus has done for us. Because if I truly am entertaining the ideas in my mind and heart of who I am and what Jesus has done for me and how much he's loved me and, and how great his sacrifice has been for me, then that should naturally well up some emotions within me. And if it doesn't, then that's not a good sign for any of us. You know, it, it could mean several things. It could mean something in us still hasn't been healed, that's been broken, that we don't know how to engage emotionally like we should. And so we need God to heal that part of our lives. Or it means that we're not actually that connected with him at that particular moment in time. And that's obviously not a good thing. So we want to get reconnected with him in our fellowship. Uh, but there should be some emotion to it. You know, so I, I think that we want to avoid is if there's no if there's no intellect with it, that's a problem. If there's no emotion with it, that's a problem. If there's nothing you know physical about it, that's a problem. Because when we see in the scriptures, involves a physical response to the true and living God. You know, God gave us our bodies for a reason, and our bodies are designed to worship Him. Like God made it so our bodies can bow down before Him. He gave us the human physical capacity, you know, for that. Like there's, there's a reason that your, your body was made in such a way that you can lift your hands and praise, you know, to God. That you can fall on your face before God. He didn't just give your body solely for the purposes, you know, of, of work or being able to eat or the other things that we do with our lives, play sports, whatever. He also gave us our bodies so that we can use them in worship of our God. The totality of who we are. And he made us physical beings. Even, we're told in the scriptures, that we even receive, at some point, a new body. Well, it, you know, if, if the body wasn't important, then we would just be, you know, spirits without any sort of physical body in eternity. But God made us as physical beings, as, that's part of who we are. You know, and so when we're around the throne of God, what do you see in the book of Revelation? You see people singing and praising. You have to use your body for that. You see people falling on their face before Jesus. You have to use your body for that. You know, these are physical things that we, we still are going to have. Um, so anyway, let's move along. As they are worshiping him, uh, you know, Herod... He wants to know, now he lies, he's not above lying, he doesn't mind lying. You know, he, he lies because he wants to know who Jesus is so he, that that baby can be destroyed. He wants to kill Jesus. The, he wants to kill any potential king of the Jews. That's, that's his desire. Um, and he wasn't above killing anyone who would get in his way. He actually had some of his own wives killed. He had some of his own children killed. So, like, he's not a good dude, and he's not afraid to use his power um, as he deems is best for himself. He's, a, he's an egoist, like, narcissist. He's above everything, right? 
So that's, uh, you know, he has a mindset of kill or be killed. And he's totally willing to be the one who kills. He doesn't have a problem. He doesn't have a problem with it. So he commits murder multiple times. It's also neat that when the uh, Magi fall at the feet of Jesus, they give three things. Now from this, people will take, well, we have three wise men, right? You see the little figurines on the, you know, when you have the little nativity scene at Christmas time. We have no idea. There might have been three. I don't know. Don't care that much. There might have been two, five, ten, a hundred. Who knows? Okay? But they brought three gifts, three types of gifts. They brought gold, they bought frankincense, and they bought, brought myrrh. Now, there's a reason that these three specific things were brought and not three other things. Uh, so, gold is for a king. It's worthy of a king. Frankincense, um, the priests would use in their offerings to God. Your essential oils, yes, for those who are... And then, okay, I had to say it, I had to say it. Um, myrrh as a, um, as a burial spice. Now, y'all start giving me myrrh, and that means, you know, bad things are about to happen is what you, is what you think. So anyway, um, so those are the three, three things that are, that are given. You know, that's not a normal, like, gift, but it shows that he's going to die. Like, that's the anticipated outcome from when Jesus is born, is that he was born for the purpose to be our sacrifice, to die on the cross for our sins. And, and that he would be buried, and that he ultimately that he's going to rise from the dead. But in that, we have gifts for a king, gifts for a priest, and gifts for a sacrifice. And only Jesus, our Savior, can be all of these. He's the only one that can simultaneously, at the same time, be the king, be the priest, and be the sacrifice. No one else can do this. He's unique in all of history in this regard. So notice it says, being warned by God in verse 12, that the Magi do not return to Herod, but they go back for their own country a different way than they came. So we see in this that God is communicating to these Magi. He is letting them know um, you know, his plan, and, and I think all along he's been communicating with them. That they've been having dreams and visions of where they're to go, you know, why they're to follow this star, to understand it has to do with the king of the Jews. Like, they are given certain pieces of information along the way. They're not given the whole story at the beginning. God could have done that, but in some ways he's, you know, he's slowly revealing himself to them, and he is giving them opportunities to be obedient, to exercise their faith. So they exercise their faith when they go to Jerusalem, when they go to Bethlehem, when they bow down and worship, now when they take this information and go a different way out and don't go back to Herod, they are exercising their faith in God. God is communicating with them, and that's proven, their faith is proven by their obedience. Faith is always proved out by obedience. If we believe God, God has told us to do something, and we believe Him, then we will want to follow through with that and do what he's asked us to do. Okay, so verse 13. Now when they had go, gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Ultimately, I believe we see four dreams that uh, God reveals something uh, to Joseph in. 
So get up and, and, and take his mother, take the child, flee to Egypt. Now what's cool is that through the Magi, God had provided all the, the resources that were necessary for that journey to Egypt and possibly you know, for their stay there. Now Joseph, being a noble, like, just dude, probably picked up some work when he was down there. And you know, he would want to do that to provide uh, for his family. And, but God, you know, provided for him ultimately, you know, through the wise men, God provided those resources that they would need. And so understand that when God tells someone to do something, God's going to provide the resources or the opportunity to acquire those resources in order to do it. You know, God's not going to ask you to do something. God's not going to say, be obedient to me. And then when you do it, when you do it, just completely hang you out to dry to where you're not actually able to follow through. God asks you to do something, he's going to provide one way or another. He's going to provide the resources or the opportunity you need to, to get those resources. Um, we know that Joseph was a carpenter by trade. Good thing about being a carpenter is that they would have been needed, like in any culture, wherever you could go, he would have been able to pick up you know, work as he, as he needed to. Um, but we want to remember his ultimate reliance, even for an opportunity for work, would come ultimately from... God, not from himself. So verse 14, so Joseph took, got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Notice that immediate obedience that Joseph has. He doesn't wait around. He's like, he has a dream. He wakes up from his dream and he's like, baby, got to wake up, get the child. We're loading up our stuff. We're out of here. We're moving. Um. And he left for Egypt, and he remained there until the death of the Herod. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So verse 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And then that which has been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. That's Jeremiah. Verse 18 is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. So we've already talked about Herod. He was willing to kill his own children, so certainly he doesn't have a qualm about killing other people's children. Um, And this did fulfill a prophecy that was given it says Rachel weeping for her children because Rachel was considered, you know, mother of, of Israel and she was buried nearby in um, near near Bethlehem. Uh, and so that's a poetic um, verse there, you know, to, to explain the the sadness and the mourning, you know, of the people. Um, you know, it, it's really sad to you know consider um some friends of ours from hannah's school they have a a son who's the same age as hannah and he has a degenerative you know disease that's going to progress worse and worse until you know he dies and he's you know he's six years old and so i'm sitting there looking at him and looking at my daughter hannah and thinking you know our situations could have been you know reversed that could just as easily be my child as his child it's not genetic. It's just one of those things that happens. But actually, a hundred 
um, only 100 other cases in the whole world that have the same condition of this particular child. Um, and so, you know, having dinner with them um, about a week ago, you know, that kind of hit me, you know, and, and just thinking about that, like, that's heavy. And you know that people sometimes, you know, deal with, you know, even a, a young child. Um, you know, one of Claire's uh, co-workers had a, had a baby that, that died. And you think of the, the sadness in the morning that comes with that. Well, now, when those things that are, you know, because of a sickness, because of some sort of infirmity, that's one thing. But to have somebody come, you know, rip your child from your arms and slaughter that child in front of you um, is a whole nother level of weeping, of sadness, you know, where it says, you know, refuse to be comforted. You know, what you think about in those situations, you know, like how long would it take to recover from that? I mean, ultimately, you don't recover. I mean, it's like you don't really recover from that. Like you, you can get on to normal life at a certain point and back to some of the normalcy, but that's always there. It's never going to actually leave. That experience isn't going to leave a person. Um, and so, you know, it's a terrible thing that these people went, went through. Um, yeah, extremely sad for us, for us to read about. And we need to recognize, you know, even today, um, our need for justice in the world. Because this is an unjust ruler making an unjust law that ultimately results in, you know, ch- these small children dying. You know, that's a, that's a tremendously awful, awful thing. And so, you know, for those of us who have any ability to give any voice to freedom in this world, you know, we have a responsibility. Um, I think the, throughout the scriptures, we have a call to do so. You know, we're told to stand up you know, for the, for, the, for the poor and for the oppressed, uh, for those who, who need help. Now, what I would be interested to know that we're not told in the story is what did the religious leaders at this time, you know, did they protest? Did they go back to Herod and say, you know, you asked us these questions, you told us these things, and we are, you know, angry. And we're willing, I mean, even our own doubt, in our own anger, um, and sense of justice, we're willing to sit here and say, kill us. You know, like, you know, do we have any sort of scene like that? We're not told. You know, we don't know. Um, what we know later, um, you know, in the Gospels from, this, you know, from the most of the, the Pharisees and the scribes and, you know, religious leaders at this time, is that they were more concerned about their particular self-interest. And I think we have to, we, you know, we need to take a lesson from that. Um, you know, the true people of God throughout Scripture and throughout history have always been willing to lose everything. You know, those who have been the closest to God. Let me put it that way. Um, you know, I'm not saying that those who weren't willing to sacrifice everything aren't followers of God, but you know without a doubt that those who, for the name of Jesus for the name of God throughout the scriptures and throughout history who have been willing to lose their lives or to lose everything, lose all their possessions for the Lord have been the ones who've been serious about following him. Their actions have backed up their talk. You know, and, and we want to be people who, 
maybe not in such a radical way, but sometimes when the circumstances call for it. Um, but throughout our lives, we're looking to where do we stand up for justice? Where do we um, make our personal sacrifices? Where do we make sacrifices as a church in order for the, the help of other people who have suffered you know, under great injustice you know, like these people had under, under Herod? But let's go on with the story, and we'll, we'll conclude as we finish in verses uh, 19 through 23. It says in verse 19 that Herod died, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Now, that's very general, the land of Israel. You know, it's a lot of options, a lot of different cities and towns, Village, small villages, small places one could live in. Um, but it says in verse 22, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. So his initial thought was, you know, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back. You know, and Bethlehem wouldn't be a bad place to be. It's like, he can go to Bethlehem. His family's from that area. That's why he was going there in the first place uh, when Jesus was born. But, you know, he's, his family's from this, this region. Um, he's not far from Jerusalem, so he can get work, you know, as he needs it. Even if he makes things as a carpenter, he can take those into, into Jerusalem uh, to sell them. Um, you know, it's a place where he's not going to have a hard time providing for his family, it's a pretty fertile you know, area. It's easy to grow things. It makes sense to go back home. But there's a problem with that. Um, Herod had several sons that were um, given different places to rule over. And Archelaus was given the region of Judea in place of his father Herod. And that was bad news because he took after his father's brutality. Um, he, he was also known for being a very brutal, brutal um, ruler. And so God warns him in a dream. And so with that, he's like, okay, don't go there. So he goes to Galilee and he ends up living in Nazareth. Now it's interesting. It says, this which was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. It's important that it says prophets there because you don't find a specific verse. It's not a direct quotation of a verse that you find in the Old Testament, he shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, but in general, it's viewed that the prophets you know, saw that he would come from there. There are several different ideas there from Isaiah 11.1, um, coming from Jesse's roots. The word for roots is similar um, to the word where we get um, Nazarene. But there's also just the idea that Jesus would come out of a lowly place or a despised place. And that's several times uh, given in the, in the prophets. Um, and it reminds us um, in John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, when he's told, you know, we may have found the Messiah, <laughs> you know, is Jesus the Nazarene is like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that was a question you know, it was a legitimate question because at this point, the Romans um, used the town of Nazareth as an outpost. Uh, they had, um, you know, their garrison, their, their military might 
some of it was stationed there, and that was welcomed by the people who lived there. And so people from there were viewed as traitors. Like they were, um, you know, linked up with the Roman government, and they would view, be viewed as those um, Israelites who were more nationalistic as you're a traitor, you're wrong. Um, if you're born, if you're in, born in that place, if you're from that place, um, you're probably. I don't know if we can trust you. You're naturally going to be on the outside as a as a not good person or as a bad person. Um, so that's Nathaniel's question: Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's a legitimate question that he's asking. It's legitimate in his own mind, at least, because his perception and the perception of the people is, you know, that's not a good place. Uh, to come from. So, um, here concerning the Messiah in chapter 2, we have three prophecies fulfilled concerning the Messiah that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would come out of Jesus, Egypt, and that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, can you imagine before Jesus is born, the prophets, or not the prophets, but the, you know, the scholars, the chief priests, the scribes, sitting around and kind of putting this all together and going, you know, I just wonder how the Messiah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, come out of Egypt, and be called a Nazarene. wonder how all that's going to happen. You know, and here in this chapter 2 of the book of Matthew, um, we see how all that happens. We see how God did all of that in his plan. Um, and the, the response of that is, to, is you know, it's giving more credibility um, as Matthew is writing for a largely Jewish audience, that Jesus truly is the king. He is the Messiah um, that has come to save his people um, and ultimately to save all people um, who would be like those from the east who came from Persia who came and bowed down and worshipped before him. You know, they worshipped him as the true king. Um, and so that's ultimately what I want to take from this is here already in the book of Matthew, we see, um, you know, you saw it multiple times in chapter one, while he's writing to this Jewish audience, he's also taking away, even from the very beginning, some of their nationalism and showing them, hey, you've got, you know, this Moabite woman who's important to this story. You have um, this woman from Jericho who is important to the story from this other place. You've got these different people that are important to the story. You've got these wise men, the Magi, you know, from another country that become worshipers of God who are part of the story, an important part of the story of Jesus, who are the ones that provide for him as a small child you know, for that journey to Egypt. It's not the people of Israel providing that for the Messiah, for the king of Israel. But it's outsiders would would be viewed as outsiders, as those perhaps viewed by some as not worthy. Now they're not getting the not worthy part from the Old Testament from their scriptures. They're getting that from their culture, you know, that has um, become very nationalistic and has perverted the scriptures. Okay, so they have these ideas in their head that aren't right, and Matthew is is chipping away at those subtly, slowly. Along the way, he's taking it away. So by the end of the book, he can finish with Jesus saying, go into all the world and make disciples of all the people groups. You know, but at the beginning, even in the story of how he's telling the story and, 
you know, there's much more that could have been written, but what he includes, he includes for a reason. You know, and he's setting Jesus up as king and he's of everything, of king of the universe, and he's chipping away at that nationalism. And he's showing them that when Jesus is the true king, like anybody who wants to come and bow down and worship him can't. And it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your language. It doesn't matter, you know, male or female. It doesn't matter anything but do you acknowledge Jesus is the true king, is the true savior? That's the question. And then what's your response to that? If you intellectually agree with that, what is the response from your heart? You know, and I think that that's such an issue today that we have in the, in the southern part of the United States of America is that people intellectually will acknowledge, yes, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, he even died for my sins. Yes, he rose from the dead. Yes, he is God. Yes, he is all these things. But if you go to, would you fall, do you fall on your face? Have you ever, or will you now, fall on your face, literally, physically, and submit yourself to him and say, Jesus, you are my Savior and King, and I am nothing in comparison to you. You are everything, and since you're my King, I'm going to seek to obey you with my life. And I'm willing in that to ask you to take my sin and to give me victory over sin. And I don't want to continue on in the same sins that I've been committing. Now we're talking about a different thing. Now we're talking about a different thing altogether. Because we've gone to something that's just an intellectual acknowledgement of the facts. To something that requires... A submission of oneself and a putting aside of other things in order to follow Jesus. Now it costs something. You know, a, a gospel where people can, you know, intellectually agree with who Jesus is and continue on in their life with nothing changing isn't the gospel of the scriptures. It just isn't. There's always the response throughout the scriptures of the falling on the face, of surrendering, of Jesus, what do you want me to do? If, if, that, um, if that acknowledgement that Jesus is the Savior and that he is the King isn't followed by, Jesus, what do I need to do to follow and to obey you? Like if that, not maybe not like immediately, but as we see like days and weeks go by, if that response isn't there of how do I, my life need to change to line up with that of my Savior and King, then I think we have to acknowledge that it's very likely that that was just an intellectual agreement with an idea. But it didn't go beyond that. And so that's why Jesus tells us to make disciples and not, he doesn't say make converts. He doesn't say just try to get people to say a prayer and, you know, and then be done with it. No, but it's this process that, you know, that true belief is going to result you know, in a process. And we have a responsibility to help people in that process to grow and to become more like Jesus. That's what God's asking of us. You know, and today, you know, we have these quote-unquote churches that are full of people. Sometimes, you know, some, I mean, I'm not even talking about the ones that 
don't even acknowledge Jesus as God. We've got a lot of churches, even in our own community, that, I mean, the good news of Jesus Christ isn't going to be preached today. Eh? Eh, you can be a better version of you is going to be preached today. And if you just follow a few steps, or let me give you something to, you know, practice or something to do, and you can be a, the best, you know, the goal is to be the best, like, fleshly version of yourself that you can be. But it's apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the power of God, apart from surrender to God, and it's powerless, ultimately. It can make these, like, yeah, a person can be nicer, or whatever, but ultimately not changing a life. So I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about even where, you know, the message is correct in terms that you need to believe in Jesus that he's your savior, that he's your king. But even there's so many times we're, con- we're content just to stop with an intellectual agreement. And when somebody says, yeah, I agree with that, we're like, yes, and we should be yes. I mean, that's a big, huge step to agree with that. But if we don't have an expectation that we're going to actually live like Jesus is king, and that I'm not and that you're not, but that Jesus is actually king, we do everyone a disservice. And it's like, yeah, you may have more people in the room, but at what cost? You know, we want more people in the room. But we want more people in the room who ultimately are becoming disciples of Jesus Christ and who are becoming more and more obedient to him in their lives. And now if we want that, then that means we also have to want that for our own lives. can't just want that for somebody else's life. We have to want that for our own lives. That's where it starts, you know, is I want to be obedient to Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to have more times where I'm on my face before my Savior and King. I want to be close to him. You know, and I think that that's, a lot of times where that breakdown happens. It's like, yeah, I want Jesus to be Savior and King for me, but over there. And it's kind of like, he's down there. And like, yeah, well, I'm going to catch up to you eventually, Jesus. You know, I'm going to get there, but I got this over here to deal with right now. And so we, you know, our distractions or our sin or whatever it is. And we're like, we'll catch you in a minute. And, you know, and we're comfortable with there being that space between us and Jesus. But what we have to want for ourselves, if we're going to want it for other people, is I want that closeness, Emmanuel, God, with us. Like, he's here, I'm at his feet, closeness to Jesus. And to walk with him like that. Not walking with him like, hey, you know, he's a few miles down the road. You know, every now and then we can catch a glimpse of him. But walking close with him. And there's a huge difference between those things. And so this morning as we take that bread and that cup, we might have to say, Jesus, it seems like you're further down the road and I know I should be there with you, like that's your desire. But right now I need you to come back and meet me where I am because I'm not, I'm not close. And I haven't been following like I should. Whatever we said, Jesus, we acknowledge you are here. Your presence is here. And we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We don't want to be distant in our minds and in our hearts this morning, but we want to be close. And we want to maintain that closeness 
day by day. You know, it, it shouldn't be this like, well, we're close on Sunday mornings, and then when we leave out the door, Jesus walks one way and we walk the other way. And I'll meet you back next Sunday. You know, that's not cool either. That doesn't really work that well for us. And so clo- that closeness day by day to walk with him is what we need to be striving for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would, by your spirit, work in each of our lives. ask you to work in my heart and my mind and my life and help me more and more to submit to you, Jesus, because you are our only true Savior, our only true King. No other person, no church, no religion, nothing else died on the cross for our sins, but only you, Jesus, did this. So may our allegiance be to you above all else. As we take the bread and cup this morning and celebrate and give thanks, Jesus, for what you've done for us, Lord, help us to do so authentically in your spirit in truth with our minds our hearts our bodies the totality of who we are engaged in that draw us close to yourself we pray dear Jesus hold us tightly we pray and help us to be obedient and to follow you to love you but not just in our words but also in our actions Even this week, we ask it, dear Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.